Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Anderson. In episode one of this three-episode series, we focus on a discussion of the three pillars of NTM lung disease diagnosis by Pamela J. McShane, Professor of Medicine at the University of Texas Health Science Center at Tyler. To follow along with the accompanying slide set, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. Now, let's get started and hear what Dr. McShane has to say on the art and science of diagnosing NTM lung disease. Thank you so much. I'm, as you know, PJ McShane at the University of Texas, and we're going to talk about the diagnosis, which is especially fun and interesting because, as you know, non-tuberculous mycobacteria are environmental organisms, which makes it all that much more important that we're very specific about calling this NTM disease. At some point or another, every person might cough up an NTM organism in a sputum or have it identified on a bronchoscopic sample. But there tends to be these sort of groups of patients who are especially at risk. And these groups are not necessarily mutually exclusive. In fact, they're very much not mutually exclusive. And so I think it's really good to keep this list in your mind as you're caring for your patient because your patient, although they're not going to present to you as having cystic fibrosis. They may not present to you as having an immune globulin deficiency, but on further analysis, and, the, and you should proceed with further analysis, make sure that they don't have those um, disease entities. For example, it's very common for me to diagnose cystic fibrosis in a 65-year-old woman. When you keep all of these different diseases in mind, it's very important that you partner with a pulmonologist or an immunologist to make sure that we're on the front edge of how to care for these other diseases so that you maximize your NTM care. And an example of that is COPD guidelines, the gold guidelines, have now come out and indicated that inhaled steroids are probably recommended only for those with an eosinophilia of high, they're higher than 300. As you know, inhaled steroids increase your risk of non-tuberculous mycobacteria. So it's, it's really important that your colleagues are maximizing care of the lung disease while you're trying to maximize the care of the NTM infection. And together, the two of you will have a much better chance of being successful. Emily Henkel is an excellent epidemiologist who studies non-tuberculous mycobacteria, and this data is from actual microbiologic data. So they're actually capturing disease. And you can see how common NTM is in the lungs. I know that you see it in the joint and you see it in the skin, but to a much higher, it's much more prevalent in the lungs And of those NTM that are in the lung, the most of them are going to be the mycobacterium avium complex. This isn't the whole story, of course, because as you know, MAC, not all MAC are equal. And so as we move toward the future, I hope one day that we'll be separating these into individual MAC species. You probably know that your patient with MAC lung disease is going to present with a range of symptoms, and typically those symptoms include coughing, fatigue, weight loss. Oftentimes, it's coughing up blood or hemoptysis. 
The tricky part about the diagnosis is a lot of these symptoms can be present in the underlying lung disease. So that's kind of what makes this really interesting and more of like detective work that you have to do with your patient to sort of tease out what of their symptoms are caused by the NTM and what are actually caused by perhaps a lung disease that's not well controlled. We're going to hear experience from a particular patient who has NTM lung disease now. I had a persistent cough, and apparently that's a real a term, a persistent cough. That it, I started coughing when I was about 50 years old, and I tried to self-diagnose for probably two years. You know, tried everything in my environment, moving things around and changing things, and it wouldn't go away. So I finally went to the doctor. That's what I knew was going on. What I didn't put together was I had started taking naps in the afternoon. And I thought it was because I was up early working. It turns out I was only working on half of the lung. So, you know, I was tired and I needed the nap to get the energy. I also lost about 30 pounds during that time period. And again, in my mind, I justified it by those evening walks and not eating so much at lunch and that kind of thing. And the doctor said, no, you've been sick for two and a half years. So... The, the real symptoms, the persistent cough, fatigue, and weight loss. And I finally started getting real diagnostic work done. They started with a chest x-ray, and the doctor, general practitioner, found a, a small nodule on my left lingula, and they were concerned that that might be an early lung cancer. So that accelerated the process. They wanted to rule out cancer. So that sent me the route of a CT scan, a PET scan, blood tests, uh, that kind of thing. All of that, of course, be, being inconclusive because it wasn't cancer. Finally, they had bronchoscopy and a sputum test, and those revealed into the There are so many aspects to that story that are so relevant and actually, you know, kind of heartbreaking um, because so many of these patients who know that they're not feeling well are searching for the right care and the diagnosis, and it takes them so long, and they really, in many ways, have to advocate for themselves to find the right place to find you. So I'm going to review the main uh, pillars of the diagnosis of NTM lung disease, and that is the clinical symptoms. I'll talk more about those clinical symptoms in a moment. The radiographic abnormalities that accompany the symptoms, and the microbiologic diagnosis. The question was about how many expectorated sputum samples should be provided in order for you to make the diagnosis in the context of symptoms and radiographic changes. If you read the guidelines, which is many, many pages, I think 39 pages or something of pure bliss of everything you ever wanted to know about NTM lung disease, authored by Dr. Daly as the first author, the paragraph, basically, the point of how many sputums you need is to make sure that you're not taking a chance environmental organism that showed up in your patient's sputum. You want to have enough so that you know it's actually there, reliable, and you want to have these sputums at slightly different times, again, so that you know it wasn't just a coincidence that the patient was exposed to the organism and then coughed it out for you. So a patient really should have a few cultures a few sputum samples, and then two should be positive at different times. The BAL is not necessarily better. It's just it's not as feasible to do a bronchoscopy on, on a patient repeatedly. 
There are studies that suggest that it's maybe more sensitive, but it's not better than two sputums. So two expectorated sputums should be obtained to make a diagnosis in the context of a radiographic and clinical picture. So there should be a couple of sputum samples at separate times. That way you know it's just not a chance occurrence that your patient happened to produce a, an isolated MAC. On the other hand, let's say your patient might have the clinical scenario and they don't cough and they only cough up one. That doesn't mean that you say goodbye, it's not there, see you in a, you know, never. On the other hand, if your patient's producing NTM on their sputum, but they don't necessarily have overwhelming lung disease, or perhaps, this is another important point, if they don't have a lot of clinical symptoms, that doesn't mean that you say, okay, you don't have enough symptoms, so goodbye, never to see you again. You get to kind of keep these patients. This is an entity that you get to practice and know your patients forever, and you should follow them, make sure that they don't develop clinical symptoms or the bronchiectasis patients with clinical symptoms don't develop recurrent MAC in their sputum. It's always looking for it. So I'm going to discuss a case now that pulls up several of the points we talked about. So a 70-year-old woman, who she's from New York, she presents to you. She's finally in her retirement. She's wanting to enjoy her retirement and feel well. But she's been experiencing frequent events of productive cough, and they improve after short courses of antibiotics, but then she sort of gets sick again. Her past medical history of, is COPD, and she has gastroesophageal reflux disease. She's a lifelong non-smoker. She's retired. She was a school teacher, enjoys gardening, and she's got multiple nodules on her CT image. I specifically put a mistake in here because it, this is something that really bothers me when my patients with pulmonary NTM present to me. Oftentimes, these patients have underlying bronchiectasis, which causes an airflow obstruction. Therefore, they get a diagnosis, they get labeled with COPD. And I'm not asserting that COPD patients are bad. We love all our patients. But there's a stigma associated with COPD that these patients who are lifelong non-smokers are concerned about. And frankly, it's an incorrect diagnosis if you read the gold criteria. So Patients may have obstructive airflow. It may be from their bronchiectasis or underlying lung disease, but that doesn't mean that they have COPD. So this is oftentimes very important to the patient that you clarify this for them and you correct the medical record because we want to be as accurate as possible. The other thing that's very important here is that this patient had many, many years of symptoms whereby she presented to her doctor, they gave her an antibiotic, she felt better for a little bit of time, then she came back again. And that was really what our case, our patient described in the video. And it's really, my heart goes out to these people because they've been searching for so long and not feeling well and not having confidence that they're going to feel okay in the future. This is a representative axial cut from her CT scan. You can see the classic, classic right middle lobe abnormalities. And within this right middle lobe, she also has mucus plugging, which is very relevant when it comes to how to treat this patient. I often use the CT scan to demonstrate to them where to focus their airway clearance. The other thing I want to make a point about with the CT scan are that, as you know, this is called nodular bronchiectasis, and the nodules are there. They come and they go, they wax and they wane, and they drive the patients crazy because the radiologist is always saying there's a nodule, rule out malignancy. 
And so your job is to, one, reassure the patient, but at the same time, as part of your diagnosis, is that you have to remember that lung cancer does occur in non-smokers. And in, twice in the last year, I've had a lifelong non-smoker non MAC patient have a malignancy on her CT scan. So it's a little bit terrifying for the practitioner, too, because you can't be complacent about those nodules. So you really have to be careful following them as, as the patient goes through life. And then, of course, the tree-in-bud abnormalities, which are demonstrated back here in the posterior aspect of the right lower lobe, these can be very indicative of MAC lung disease or M. abscessus lung disease or M. cansasii lung disease. But the other thing you must think about is that not every tree-in-bud opacity is caused by non-tuberculous mycobacteria. The patient may be chronically aspirating. And that's something that you have to kind of think on the background. Should I refer this patient to GI to just make sure they're not also chronically aspirating? May make a big difference in how easy it is to treat these patients. Again, I think it's really important to partner with our colleagues and have a network of a good GI physician, a good pulmonary physician, a good immunologist to whom you can refer your patients. Here we go. Here comes the inappropriate <laughs> diagnosis of COPD. Not unusual for patients to have moderate airflow obstruction or even severe airflow obstruction. Here you can see her FEV1% predicted is 66, and that is consistent with moderate airflow obstruction. This is not always reversible the way it is in asthma. And then she coughs up her sputum sample for you, and you get your results. She's got MAC lung disease. Uh, we're fortunate enough to know the, the species of this MAC. You may just get MAC. Nevertheless, you want two of these uh, positive sputum cultures to call this MAC lung disease once you have um, the other criteria. One thing that I really want to make a point of that it took me a little while to get the hang of when I went into um, NTM is that, remember, this sputum gets washed with you know, sodium hydroxide and N-acetylcysteine. So if your patient has a ton of pseudomonas to ba on baseline and the lab has to wash it twice to get it pure enough to grow, sometimes you might not get a positive sample or the forever interesting combination of a positive smear but no growth on the culture. In that case, pick up the phone and call the lab tech and say, did you have to, you know, what happened there? Did you have to wash that or get a little bit more information about that? Again, partnering with your colleagues, even, um, and very importantly, the lab side of things. Here's a summary of your three pillars, and each one of those pillars has a lot of nuance built into it, which is really what makes this so much fun to do as a living. But starting with the clinical part of this, typically the patient's going to have underlying lung disease, so it's very important that you make sure that that is well-controlled before you ascribe it all to MAC lung disease. Radiographics, remember we talked about those nodules and other things that might manifest other processes going on in the lungs so that you can treat those. And then finally, the microbiologic sputum sample. You want two positive sputum samples, one BAL, with a close eye toward what species that is and the susceptibility profile. I'd like to thank Dr. McShane for that excellent discussion and thank you to our listeners for joining in. As a reminder, to view the slide set for this podcast and the full program on clinical case studies in non-tuberculous mycobacterial lung disease, expert insights and best practices, on the Clinical Care Options website, click on the links in the show notes for this episode. 
And please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you.